Welcome to FRT episode 83. I'm Brad Carr of the IAF, and today we're going to look at the emerging force of quantum computing and its potential implications for financial services. It's a topic of growing importance as quantum computing transitions from development labs to cloud deployment and application testing. And we're going to look not only at its superior computational power compared to classic computers, but also the opportunities for large problem optimization and modeling, and some of the concerns about preparedness for post-quantum encryption. In this episode, you're going to hear some selected extracts, some highlights from an IIF webinar that we held earlier this month, which we held at a time of day for Asia-Pacific audiences. My colleague Conan French is in the moderator's seat, and he's joined by three great experts in Denise Ruffner, Vice President of Business Development at IonQ, Marco Millick, the Head of Global Exchange Asia-Pacific at State Street, and Rudy Raymond, Quantum Algorithms and Software Researcher at IBM Research in Tokyo. To kick us off, Conan asked Denise Ruffner to start us off with an overview of Quantum 101. Here's Denise before we then hear from Rudy Raymond. Quantum computing is is a new type of computing, as Conan said, and I think um, it's a a little different. It's based on the laws of physics. Um, And a quantum computer, one of the things you'll hear with respect to a quantum computer is the word called a qubit or a quantum bit which is different than a bit that we're normally that we normally refer to on a classic computer. And so typically with a quantum computer, one of the questions is how many qubits does it have? Um, which is gives you a relative idea of some of the power of the computer. And I can get into more of that later. So quantum computer, because a computer based on the laws of physics, um, and it, can solve different problems than classical computers. There are classes of problems that a supercomputer will have problems running, something like optimization, um, like or think about a traveling salesman where you have to deliver 50 packages and what's the best route. There are certain problems that quantum computers will excel at. And that's what the industry is so excited about, this new technology is it's additive. It's not gonna necessarily be subtractive and take away, but there are gonna be certain problems that are gonna be better solved on these quantum computers. And I, it, it will um, impart many distinct advantages to companies that leverage the power of these computers to solve some of their business problems. There's a theory in mathematics, given this entanglement, you can compute something that even classical cannot compute. So something that uncomputable, now you can compute it with com- quantum computing. So it's very, um, it's like we, ha- we are given a new tools of uh, computation, and then we can use it for uh, many problems that uh, beyond what we have uh, uh, now. And probably like, this is uh, the, the clearest example, textbook example are uh, prime factorization of source algorithm that allows us to break uh, the internet encryption that we have now. And also uh, the, fam- the most famous uh, one of the other famous one is Grover Search that allows us also for Monte Carlo sampling. And both of them uh, surprisingly relates to this financial uh, sector. Marco, as someone who um, in your, your day job relies on classical computing and the, the power and systems that have been built today, but also has the physics background to understand um, quantum computing maybe better than many of your peers, um, what are some, some comments that you might share or some, some um, flavor of why a shift to quantum computing might be so important if we're continuing to look for um, the great improvements that we've experienced in computing over the last 50 years? 
Yeah, thank, thanks for that, Conan, and good morning, evening, everyone. Uh, I mean, to add to everything that Denise and, and, and Raymond said, there is obviously potential for that exponential improvement in delivery of computation. But I think the other angle that's, that's relevant to all of us, it's looking back at the advancement of classical computers over what's now 50 years, if we start roughly in the 70s, and then realizing that um, you know, roughly the industry has been following something called the Moore's Law. And as a, as a scientist, I, I have to give a caveat. This is a very loose use of the term law. It's really an observation. It's not a law of physics. And it's basically saying roughly every one to two years, the computational power will double. So this is why you have a new iPhone every two years, right? Because the advances in chip design that deliver computation allow us to solve more problems. Now, there's a lot of clever tricks in designing classical computer, but ultimately it all boils down to how small you can make the wire, quote unquote, the wire, that transmits electrons back and forth. And that gives us smaller and faster computers. So in the 70s, this dimension that was relevant was measured in microns, so 1,000th part of a meter. Today, it's nanometers. It's five nanometers. So an, an improvement of 2,000, a factor of 2,000. That's all great. But the size of a single atom is about half a nanometer. So we don't have much to go. So it's, it's important to realize that this continuous development of classical computers, it will stop. Um, sort of the less popular corollary to the Moore's law is X new gen, every new generation is also exponentially more expensive, right? So um, again, it depends who you listen to, what you read, but we're probably several years, not several decades from pushing our existing best possible, best known ways of computing to its physical limit. And we have to look for an alternative. Uh, for all of the reasons that were noted, quantum is a, is a fantastic alternative. And I think the rest of the, the discussion today will also touch up upon, you know, what lends itself well and what potential is the reasonable timing to expect these things. With that as an initial overview to set the scene about this technology, Conan then continues the discussion with our expert panel, firstly with Denise explaining the development trajectory and the race for quantum volume, then followed by Marco. Where we are in the development and deployment curve, and there's some sort of debate because people use terms like close, far, near, <laughs> which mean a lot of different things for different people. It all depends on your perspective. You know, uh, a decade to someone might sound far away. Um, but when we think about the you know, generational uh, cycle of technology in industry and society, and certainly the, uh, the regulatory and uh, supervisory um, gestation cycle, you know, a decade all of a sudden sounds uh, very close. And in fact, you know, in some ways, um, if you haven't started engaging with quantum computing, you know, you may be late. So as we start this question of where are we on the development curve and, and deployment, uh, maybe Denise, if you could start us off there with some um, comments about the hardware and software layers and uh, role of cloud. Sure. So um, quantum computers right now are all accessed via the cloud. 
So they're not in anybody's data center. Um, but what I wanna talk about is the development of quantum computing. So the first quantum computer was introduced, I think four years ago on the cloud by IBM, and it was a very small device. And IBM was good enough to open it up for anybody to access for free, um, thinking that it wouldn't be very popular and found out that it was resoundingly popular. And since then, the capabilities of quantum computers and the, the number of qubits um, has grown. And it's been very exciting because there's many different ways to build a quantum computer. And whether you're doing something called superconducting or trapped ion or photonics, there are many different ways to get there. And so now what we are is we're in the midst of a bit of a race on who can develop the best quantum computer. Um, there's been a measurement developed, and actually it was developed by IBM, and it's called quantum volume. And it's a way to compare uh, one quantum computer to another. So it's not just necessarily all about the number of qubits, but it's also about the error in the system and how good your measurements can be. And so what's happening is a race for quantum volume. And um, IBM has been the leader since early days. Um, they currently have a quantum volume of 64, which is amazing. And they've pledged to at least double quantum volume every year. What happened this year at the beginning of COVID, uh, Honeywell, um, the thermostat company, turns out had a huge quantum computing initiative going on. And they introduced a quantum computer with a 64 quantum volume. Um, and this is using a different technology than uh, IBM. So IBM is superconducting, Honeywell is trapped iron, and uh, created quite a buzz in the world with their advanced computer. And Honeywell has pledged to increase their quantum volume by 10x a year. Um, and then recently, Honeywell announced a 128 quantum volume computer, which was very exciting. And then 24 hours later, um, my new employer, INQ, announced a new quantum computer with a quantum volume of 4.2 million. And what that shows you is, is just some amazing innovation, of course, when you um, jump that far ahead. But it shows you that there's a race going on and there are going to be different leaders um, along the way. And also that this technology is advancing much faster than we had anticipated. And so that's part of the reason why when I speak to Conan and I talk about quantum computing to anyone, I talk about the fact that you can't just write it off and say, oh, it's 10 years away. I'll worry about it five years from now. It's really starting to happen now. And it's moving more quickly every day. There are literally 100 companies in the world working on hardware, and I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in hardware, both in um, increases in quantum volume, decreases in the size of the computer. Um, so there's a lot that's going to be happening in the world. And I guess my message to the audience is the time is now to start thinking about what your um, strategy is going to be ar around quantum computing and to start thinking about getting involved in it. This quantum volume versus counting qubits is, is absolutely relevant because it's a mix of how many 
these computing instances and storage instances I have, the qubits, versus how long I can sustain a computation before it becomes unreliable. So that definitely is the right thing to track. Now, um, why does this matter to the cloud? Uh, what I would see us is entering a phase where quantum computers will not solve holistic problems. They will get really, really good at optimizing part of the computation. And that part of the computation could be absolutely critical to how long it takes to get something done. Right? So I see the starting point as this blend of classical computing and quantum computing where particular functions or libraries that are just difficult for classical computers and have been implemented and tested through research and industry participation become part of a single program. And the only way to deliver that and build that is using the cloud. And it will also allow multiple participants, especially on the hardware side, to be part of the same ecosystem. So as an application developer, as a, as a algorithm developer, I can go ahead and test out these, these different computers, their pros and cons, uh, and sort of validate all of, the, all of the claims and assumptions about really the superiority of technology while we're still in this very early stage. And, and I'm completely agreeing with Denise. It's, it's, you know, this, is, this is a battle to whoever builds, builds the first universal device. And um, to put these developments into a practical context for our industry, We'll now pick out part of the conversation where Denise and Rudy focus on some of the prominent applications across the economy and within the financial services industry. And then Denise and Marco will continue with some thoughts on quantum preparedness and some of the work of NIST, the US National Institute of Standards and Technology. That question of large optimizations and those things that quantum computing really lends itself to, um, what are the areas uh, both broadly in society and within financial services uh, where we see opportunity. I think people probably have read, if they've read um, a little bit about portfolio construction, risk scenarios, uh, Monte Carlo, which we we'll, might dive into in a little detail later. Um, but maybe, uh, Denise, if you could start us off with the areas um, that you see a lot of, uh, what's the heat map in application development? So uh, very interesting. I think that the greatest um, number of companies that have started in quantum computing is really in the banking industry. And we've seen quite a, quite a few of the major banks um, start quantum computing groups and invest in uh, hiring whole teams to start working on quantum computing solutions for the bank. But at the same time, we're also seeing a lot of interest in uh, new material design. Uh, it started off with JSR out of Japan, a materials company, and we've seen a lot of different companies around the world, BMW, um, Bosch, looking at new materials, as well as uh, pharmaceutical companies looking at how they can use quantum computing to speed up uh, drug design and drug development and drug screening. Um, other areas where there's a lot of quantum computing interest is in the development of batteries. Um, are there ways that we can use quantum computing to figure out uh, how to make batteries better? And then I think a final area of big emphasis is in uh, carbon sequestration. 
And uh, quite a few different oil companies and different firms around the world are looking looking at how they can reduce pollution and uh, and you know get rid of uh, carbon. Uh, so there's a lot of different areas. We recently worked on a paper um, for the this Monte Carlo, uh, which is like the the basic building of this Monte Carlo simulation or quantum device. And if we use the textbook algorithm, it's very expensive. It means like we need a lot of quantum operations. We need many more qubits. And then uh, we look at the um, uh, old paper and say it's like, oh, we can do that without this uh, additional qubit. We, you can do it without uh, this quantum, more quantum operation, but it's folklore. I mean, like everybody knows it. you can do it, but no papers on that, no documentation on that but it's trivial for a computer science. And then we decided to work on it. And so surprisingly, it's become one of like uh, the most cited papers that we have. It says that uh, we, we can reduce the number of gates, we can reduce the number of qubits probably like, uh, so that it's more reachable within a uh, device that we have. So um, this is uh, what we do in this section on sort of those uh, problem areas that in financial services that this technology really lends itself to, you know, I think you've talked through a little bit about um, large optimization areas, uh, but any further color on applications that you might share? So I, I look at fraud detection as being something very important. Um, fraud detection is is really hard because it's imbalanced. In other words, that the majority of the data isn't fraudulent. And so when you're doing fraud detection, um, it, it, it's actually a very hard machine learning type problem because you're looking, you're looking for the proverbial needle in the haystack. So I think there are a lot of different applications in finance that um, quantum computing will contribute to. Thinking about encryption and preparedness, and I know that um, NIST, the uh, National Institute for Standards in the U.S., which is a important standard-setting body globally as well, um, has been thinking about quantum preparedness. And I was wondering if you might just um, share a few words uh, about developments there and um, this aspect of being ready for quantum computing. Sure. Uh, very interesting. So NIST has actually been working on uh, security standards for quantum computing for three years. And there were originally 69 submissions um, to, given to NIST to uh, set security standards. And in June, they announced that they'd winnowed it down to 15. So now they're looking at 15 different potential standards of which they're gonna choose a handful of them. They don't choose one, they choose probably three to five. And they will call those out as ultimately um, standards um, for security in order to guard against the potential of uh, intrusion by a quantum computer. So NIST is in this final round. So they've winnowed down again to 15. And uh, I think in the next year or so, they will come out with, um, I'm gonna say a ruling or a recommendation on uh, new security standards. And that's gonna be a time when I think uh, all of the all of the company, con companies with data centers around the world, world are going to start having to reevaluate their current security standards and start looking at how they um, can uh, prevent any hacking or intrusion by quantum computers. So that uh, standard setting and that new standards is coming along quite 
quite quickly as well. And it will be something people will have to consider as they move forward when they're looking at security. Any comments on you know the the cost advantages that uh, classical computing might um, provide for a while? I, I think maybe the way to look at this question is, you know, there will be areas where quantum computing um, has an advantage and makes sense, and there will be areas where classical tools and machines are quite good at continuing on. Um, but uh, in, any comments from you? One thing that that I would add to that is um, the quantum computer is solving all of the, or a fault-tolerant quantum computer will solve all of the classical computing problems. So it's a, it's a superset. It just won't get exponentially better at all of it. So if I think of, you know, the collapse of Moore's law for silicon-based computers, uh, we, we need quantum computing to even continue that steady progress in a more efficiency and speed, even for classical computation, meaning problems that don't lend themselves better to quantum. A great discussion about a groundbreaking and far-reaching technology. To quickly recap on a few of the things that most stood out for me. In terms of current status or maturity, the race for quantum volume, fascinating to hear the story there of how IBM has achieved a quantum volume of 64 and committed to an annual doubling, how Honeywell had used a different underlying technology to recently step up from 64 to 128, looking for a tenfold increase. But then just the, the quantum leap, excuse the pun, of IonQ's dramatic step up recently to 4.2 million really shows that this technology's progress is happening here and now. I think it's important to, to again reiterate about Cloud's role as an underlying enabler for quantum. It's a point we've heard before, but which Marco really explained and, and underlined here. Um, notable, I think, that banks are actively engaging with this technology, and it's particularly relevant for fraud detection uh, and where we are dealing with imbalanced data sets, as Denise put it, and the especially difficult machine learning problems. Well, there are also some really interesting applications as we look outside of our own industry, beyond finance, and Denise highlighted some of the exciting uh, possibilities emerging in improving battery technology and carbon sequestration. And lastly, in terms of security and, and quantum preparedness, uh, there's obviously plenty to watch for at NIST, uh, in particular with new recommendations or guidelines expected to follow in the coming year. So a lot of great insights there from Denise, Rudy and Marco. And in thanking them for generously sharing their perspectives, I also want to give a shout out to another leading quantum expert that's a great friend of us here at the IF. Michael Brett previously joined us on FRT to talk quantum way back on episode 47, and even before that to debrief the 2019 IIF Digital Finance Symposium on episode 37, where he spoke. Um, Michael's actually just moved to a new quantum-related role at Amazon in Seattle, and we do look forward to hosting him here again in the new year. To highlight a few of our upcoming episodes, we're going to close out 2020 with a look at the IIF Machine Learning Model Governance Survey, which 66 banks and insurers from around the world participated in. My colleagues and the report co-authors, Natalia Bailey and Dennis Ferenzi, will call out the key findings with special guest Rachel Bailey of Lloyds Banking in the UK. And picking up in the new year, we're going to look at connectivity between some of the great new payments innovations occurring around the world. Discussing that with Terry Angelos, Visa's Global Head of Fintech, and he's going to explain a bit of how Visa has been working to link up some of those localised or domestic initiatives. We're going to look at the emerging world of central bank digital currencies with Joanna leibeck Lydia of Nordia. And we're going to look further at developments in digital identity with Greg Wolfond, Chief Executive Officer of SecureKey in Canada. Please join us again for those upcoming episodes. 
I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for being with us on FRT.